morning I want to talk about um, kind of extending the borders of the kingdom. And, you know, uh, for a while now, uh, we've been sharing uh, different ones of us, um, Bill and, uh, and the rest of the team. We've been talking about this transition. And uh, Eric was, was praying in first service that the, there's a sense that this transition, you know, that you, you go from one side of the river, uh, you know, the wilderness to the other side of the river, the promised land, that you're in this place of transition, like there's no sense of settling, you're, you're in a sense of pioneering. And Eric kind of shared with us this morning in the first service as he prayed that he felt like that we had actually transitioned to the, I'm putting this in my own words, but that we actually had transitioned to the other side of the river, so to speak, and that we were beginning to learn how to settle in this new promised land. And I believe that's true. And, and I, I've been talking about if you... Uh, have listened to what I've been sharing for probably actually the last couple of years, but uh, in more intensely in the last year, that part of this transition that we're going through is this place where we're moving from a pastorate um, sort of uh, of Christianity where we're pastors, and I'm talking about, we call everybody pastor, but you know, the fivefold ministry, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, you can find that in Ephesians 4. We did an extensive study on that for about two or three months ago for two or three sessions. The pastors gather, and you know Jesus talked about shepherds when he said, you know, the shepherd leaves the 99, goes after the one. And that's what pastors like to do. Pastors, fivefold pastors are called to, to get the, the sheep to flock together and to become healthy and happy. And we've been talking about this transition that we're going through that the structure of the church is moving from being pastoral, and I don't mean moving from in the sense that we're leaving it, but it's, it's moving from, the, from pa- being pastoral to an apostolic model because we've come into this new apostolic age. And an apostolic church is not just a church that, that uh, you know, has you know, some kind of super leaders or something at the, at the head of it or, or whatever. But an apostolic church at the very core of what an apostolic church is, it's a cultural transformer. And I, I, I spent two sessions talking about that apostles transform culture. And that, uh, and we use this illustration in John chapter five, where the pool of Bethesda. It says that remember that the, the angel of the Lord would come down in certain seasons and stir the water, and whoever first got into that pool would get healed. And we talked about how pastorates are like pools, like the pool of Bethesda, where people come to church to get healed. They come to church to get taught. They come to church to get counseled. They come to church to get delivered. And the emphasis on a pastoral model as people is that people actually come to church. The goal of a pastor is that people flock, that they come to church. But then we were talking about this transition that we're going through. And it's, of course, not that we don't want people to come to church. So let me be clear there. But... <laughs> We need you to come, not to stay home watching iBethel TV, okay? But <laughs> we caught a bunch of people playing hooky today and right there. Okay, so, but Ezekiel's River is a great example of this apostolic season that we're in because you know the story of, that Ezekiel met this angel and the angel took him from the sanctuary a thousand cubits and cubits, cubits, not cupid. Cubits. It's a distance, not an angel that makes you love people. And a thousand cubits in there, and there was a, a water up to their ankles, and then two thousand to their knees, and three thousand. And you, you understand, we, we did a whole session on this, that, and the point was that the, in Ezekiel's river uh, illustration, the further you got from the sanctuary, the deeper the river got. And we talked about in that illustration that 
or in that kind of like metaphor, that parable, if you will, that that represented the fact that God wanted to go to the deepest, darkest places of the planet. And the further that you got from the sanctuary, the greater the miracles would be. So we're going from this transition that we're going from coming to church to becoming the church. And that the goal of Sunday mornings and the goal of gatherings isn't just that people would come and get fed. And by the way, if you're a brand new believer, come to church and get fed. But you know what? If you've been a believer for two or three or four years and you're coming to church to get fed, grow up. I don't mean that harshly. I just mean it's time to grow up. It's like, I didn't get fed today. It's like, you're not an invalid. Whoosh, that sounded so harsh. Let's try that again. In a different tone of voice. (laughs) If you're three or four or five years old in the Lord and you're coming to church and this is the place where you get fed, guess what? You're supposed to eat at home. (laughs) Listen, (laughs) the leaders of a church shouldn't take the place of you having a relationship with God. And if they do, that's called dysfunction. Well, we get fed by you. Well, awesome. That's, I know you would. <laughs> I was going to say something funny, but nothing came to me. But anyway, the point is, is that we're, we're beginning to come to church to get equipped. We're beginning to come to church to be, get deployed, commissioned, if you will. And so that the church becomes a Holy Spirit terrorist training center where people come to the church and they get equipment to destroy the works of the devil. By the way, we're not trying to destroy anybody's stuff, just the devil's stuff. Are you following me? But the very nature of apostles is that they transform cultures. Apostles transform cultures. It's like, see, evangelists save people. Apostles save cities. They bring the kingdom. And, you know, Jesus said, I will build the church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. He said, you extend the kingdom. It's 127 times Jesus commanded us to extend the kingdom. Wherever you go, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, and say the kingdoms come. Come on, near you. Let's try that again. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, and say the kingdoms come near you. Very good. And so the point is, is that Jesus said he'd build the church, and, and that our responsibility was to build the kingdom. How many of you understand that we've, we've reversed roles? That we're building the church and wondering who's extending the kingdom. And the goal is, <laughs> did you get that? And then we're, we're wondering who's extending the kingdom. It's like Jesus said, I'll build the church. Listen, how about this? I'll work on the church. I'm going to make a church. I'm going to build a church that isn't made with hands. Okay, that's what I'm doing. You extend the kingdom. And then we build the church and wondering what, who's extending the kingdom. And part of the struggle is, is that we think that the kingdom and the church are synonymous. How many of you understand that all of the church is in the kingdom, but not all the kingdoms in the church? That the kingdom is bigger than the church. That's a silly example, but how many of you know that God owns all the planets and, and all the stars and he owns every universe? So how many know that God owns Jupiter, which isn't in the church? But it's in the kingdom. This is just a good word. That's all right. I'm going to encourage myself. Uh, You know, you have to take the cap off. Because you can do it like this. But it's like false prophets. 
always learning, never coming to knowledge of the truth. So, oh, oh, that's real water. Thank you very much. Here, baby. Thank you very much. Sorry. So, um, you know, uh, I gave you this statistic a while back, but the, in America, and I don't know about the rest of uh, the nations, but in America, the church, I'm sorry, the cities that have the greatest Christian church-going population have the worst social statistics in our nation. Just to make sure that you know what I'm saying. The more people that go to church in an American city, the worse off the church is, I'm sorry, the worse off the city is socially. So the highest murder rate, the highest poverty, the highest unemployment, and you can get the idea, are in cities where they have the greatest Christian church-going population. The point there is that gathering people and transforming cities are not synonymous. And you remember the prayer that Jesus gave us. It's the Lord's Prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. Everybody knows the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You understand the emphasis that Jesus gave us was not you going to heaven, but heaven coming to earth. Now, how many of you know that when you die, you're all going to go to heaven, providing you know Jesus? Okay, let's try this again. How many of you understand that when you die, you're going to go to heaven if you know Jesus? Well, okay. So your destiny is heaven, but your ministry is heaven on earth. That's the goal, that every part of earth would be impacted by heaven. That's our job. That's our mandate. So it's impossible to be an apostolic people and have a city that's in disarray and not care. Uh, Try over here. It is impossible... To be an apostolic people and to live in a city that's in disarray and not care. You can always tell how close you are to the palace by how you respond to injustice. Moses was raised in Pharaoh's house and when he saw his brothers mistreated, he felt like he was supposed to do something about that. Why? Because that's how princes think. And you're a royal priesthood. A holy nation. And some people say, my, this, my citizenship is in heaven. Um, That's only half true. You have dual citizenship. You are seated in heavenly places in Christ, and you have responsibility for heaven's mandate, and you also are a citizen of earth. That's why Paul argued in the book of Acts that he was a Roman citizen. He's also the... Paul's also the one who argued that his citizenship was in heaven. So he had dual citizenship, and so do you. When Jesus said, Render to Caesar what Caesar's, and and to God what is God's, He was telling us that we have responsibility for Caesar, the world, and we have responsibility for God, for what what happens in the kingdom. Are you following me so far? So it's impossible for us to see injustice and be close to the palace and not feel like that we have responsibility to do something about that. In fact, part of the struggle is, is that when we don't take ownership of, of this planet, and how many of you know that God said, that, this, that the, the heavens, the highest heavens have been, are the Lord's, but the earth has been given to the sons of men. Let me repeat that. That the heavens, the highest heavens are the Lord's, but the earth has been given to the sons of men. 
When you ask questions like, well, if God is in control of the planet, then why is there evil? Why, is, why do people starve? Why is there crime? Well, he puts you in charge of the planet. So ask yourself that question. When God said, remember, Genesis 1 is the, is, was the beginning of the mandate for all humanity. And what was the mandate? Be fruitful and multiply and take dominion. So when you ask God, hey, why are you letting bad things happen to this planet? He's saying, I did it and I put you there. And not only did I put you there, I put you in charge. Okay. Listen, to ignore injustice is to ignore injustice. (laughs) Something profound was supposed to come to me right after that. (laughs) I love this. You know, Samson in the Bible, he took the, 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 he he got a bunch of foxes and he tied, tied their tails together. He set them on fire and sent them into the fields. That's my job today. Set your tails on fire and send you into the field. I don't know if that worked. But anyway, sounds so good when I ran it through my mind the first time. So I want to talk a little bit about justice and injustice and some of the things that I see happening. And the fact that we, that we as, as the church, not as Bethel Church, but as the global church, we are the answer to the world's problems. We are the answer to people's prayers. You know, when Moses met God at the burning bush, God said this, I've heard the cry of my people and I send you. You're like, I'm not the savior of the world. You're the body of the savior. You're the, you're his hands. You're his feet. You're his heart. You're his, you're his mind. You have his mind. Are you following me so far? And so I want to talk a little bit about how cultures transform for the next little bit. And, you know, do you understand that laws are the fruit or the manifestation of our core values. Laws. They're the fruit. The manifestation of the core values. Laws do not determine our core values. They enforce them. Laws don't determine our core values. They enforce them. Okay, right now you have no idea what I'm talking about, right? So let me give you an example. Do you realize that before 1920, that a woman in the United States of America could not vote? This, we're not talking about Afghanistan. We're not talking about Russia. We're not talking about Africa. We're talking about America. Are you following me? Ninety years ago in this country, 90 years, my Kathy's grandmother is 100 years old. It means that she would have lived in a time when women could not vote. Now, women have won the right to vote. Have you ever in your lifetime heard any appeal, any amendment trying to be passed, any Supreme Court case anywhere in the United States in your lifetime where that right for a woman to vote is under attack or wants to be appealed? Anyone? Ever? No. You know why? Because the law followed a core value change in the way that we viewed women. That's why my great, great, great granddaughters will still enjoy freedom to vote 100, 200, 300 years from now if they live in America because the core way we view women has changed. And because the core way we view women has changed, the law enforces the way we view the world. 
I don't know if you're getting what I'm saying. I'm trying to make a point that we think that laws change core values. I'm telling you core values perpetuate laws that enforce our view. Now, I understand that it does become an ecosystem, which one of our students took me aside and said, I totally agree with what you said, but there are a lot of people that think because something's legal, it is right. Now, anybody who studies history doesn't think like that because there's been lots of lousy laws. For instance, if you think like that, then you think that slavery was okay because it was legal. But it is true that non-thinking people will believe that whatever is legal is also righteous. So this young man came up and said, it is true that core values, that laws enforce core values, but it's also true that core values are, I'm sorry, that core, uh, that laws, I'm sorry, it is true that laws spring up from core values, but he also said that laws enforce core values, and actually it becomes an ecosystem because there are a lot of non-thinking people that believe if it's true, if it's, I'm sorry, if it's righteous, it's legal, and if it's legal, it's righteous. So laws do perpetuate core values, but it doesn't begin there. Are you getting, are you getting where I'm going? I had an encounter with a businessman on November 16, 2006. We were flying home from Pennsylvania, and I was very tired. I had done three conferences, and I was in two churches. I think it was one of those times where it was like 17 sessions in four, five days or six days or something crazy. It was just a crazy schedule. And I, I, I have to say this uh, just to clear up something like people repeat this in the context I didn't say it in. I love people. I really love people, but you can burn out on anything. And so I love people. I wouldn't be doing this, but but I can get to a place where I am so people out. There's nothing else to give. And I I don't know if this happens to you, but emotionally, like my fuel gauge is on past empty. And I'm just hoping I got enough gas to get home, if you know what I mean. And when people are still pulling on you and you're and you're past empty, you begin to like, I need to get away. I need to. And, the, and I'll tell you, in the 21st century, it's the hardest place in the world to get away. Because people can text you, email you, Skype you, call you. Jesus only knows how they can, people can get in touch with you. So that passage where Jesus got off to himself was like some kind of miraculous thing in the 21st century. And you're like, well, just turn off your cell phone. Yeah, I understand that. My cell phone has this has a demonic spirit on it in it. I'm really ringing even though you turn me off. Whatever. Okay. So anyway, so I'd had one of those encounter, one of those week, week or week and a half where I was just completely and wholly exhausted and was so looking for the solace of a plane where nobody on the plane knows me. I'm like, I'm going to get on the plane. I'm going to, I'm going to be by myself. It's going to be so nice. I'm going to have an eight-hour ride home, it's going to be peaceful. So I get on this plane and finally get all my stuff organized, and I go to sit down, and there's a man there, probably in his mid-40s, a, a, a kind of a, um, a, a smaller-framed man, and, um, and I look over, and he's looking at me, and I, so I look over and I smile at him, and I don't offer him any greeting, because I'm thinking, I don't want to have a conversation, because I'm going to take, and I'm going to rest. And so as soon as I get seated, he extends his hand. He says, I don't know what his name was, but let's just say Joel. My name's Joel. I'm like, oh, Chris, good to meet you. And so when we take off, he starts asking questions like, where are you going? 
you know, I'm like, I'm going to California. Oh, I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people have been to California. Awesome. Good. You know. And I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to send him a message like, like, you know, like I have the brakes on, on my mouth. So I really don't want to talk. And so then he says to me, uh, well, you know, oh, yeah, that's good. I've been to California. And, and what do you do for a living? Now, I usually say I'm an author and a conference speaker, because as soon as you say pastor, conversation's over. So I say, I'm a pastor. Which really isn't true. That's a, really a lie. And I ask for forgiveness every time I say it. I said, I'm a pastor. And he said, and this, he says, well, and this is what he, this is his response. I mean, this is exactly as close as I can remember how he said it. He said, well, I'm a Jewish liberal atheist businessman. That's what he said. I'm like, I don't want to pick a fight. I just want to go to sleep. And he seemed a little surprised when I said, oh, well, it's great to meet you. So we take off flying, and the guy's just talking. And he's just talking and talking. And, 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 he, and he begins to tell me that he owns an um, orthopedic, uh, he, he makes orthopedic shoes. He has a business where they make orthopedic shoes uh, for like people who have diabetes and problems with their feet. And he's been in the business for 20 years in San Francisco, and, but he's never made money. Now, forgive me, I hope this doesn't sound wrong, but when I meet a Jewish business person, there's something about Jewish people and the ability to make money. God has blessed them. I hope that you hear this in the spirit I mean it in. I have them pray for me. When I meet a Jewish person, I'm like, would you pray for me? You guys have this amazing ability to be blessed with finances. So this guy, he's, so he's talking and talking and talking, and I'm like just, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, maybe if I don't say much, it won't perpetuate the conversation. And so he's telling me, so he gets this place and he goes, yeah, I've been in business for all these years. And, and I'm like, oh, I was in business. He says, yeah, and I, I've, never made, I've never made a living. I've never made any money. <laughs> so I don't know why it just hit me so funny. So he just said, wait a second. I said, did you just say that you were a business, Jewish businessman, and you don't make money? <laughs> he said, yes. I said, that seems kind of funny. It just, I said, I don't know why, but that just strikes me kind of humorous. And, you know, and he caught the humor. You know, he was he laughed and he's like, yeah, I, I know we're kind of have this, we're kind of famous for being prosperous. I'm like, you really are. And he goes, well, I'm not. So he started talking about his business and the Holy Spirit came on us, on both of us. Remember, he's an atheist Jewish business and came on both of us. And I started sharing with him all the stuff about his business he takes out a notepad and he takes about 15 or 20 pages of notes on a white, on one of those white or yellow notepads. And, and like when we lay out this whole strategy for his business, he has eight employees. We, he, you know, he's writing down their names and we're giving them all new uh, business roles and we're, we're changing his whole business model. And I mean, it was, it was really powerful. And so we get through this conversation that's about three hours long. And I mean, he is just really intensely like, oh, that's really good. I've never thought of anything like that before. And, and I'm recognizing, like, this, whole, this is a Holy Spirit strategy. This is not Chris Valentin, professor. This is Holy Spirit strategy. <laughs> and so, so we get all done. And, and as we're winding this kind of his, you know, his uh, plan down, he looks over at me, and he's got tears in his eyes, and he said, I hired a, a um, consultant, a business consultant, three months ago, and he said, he's been working for me, and I've paid him thousands of dollars, and he's not done anything for me. 
And he said, and you've given me a whole business plan, and you've never even seen my business. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. He goes, I want to make you some shoes. You know, they cost $2,500 a pair, these orthopedic shoes. And I'm like, no, no, that's okay. So anyway, we make this great connection. And I'm still like, oh, I still have, you know, four-hour flight, so four four more hours. So I'm like, yeah, yeah. So we kind of wind down. He put away his tablet, and I close my eyes. And I'm like, oh, thank you, Jesus. That was kind of fun, actually. And he taps me on the, on the shoulder, and he goes, hey. I go, yeah, and his whole countenance has changed. And he goes, what do you think about abortion? Well, this guy just wants to fight, you know. He, just wants, he says, what do you think about abortion? And I'm thinking, you know, he told me, his introduction told me, we're not going to agree. I mean, I get it. I get we're not going to agree. And I'm not trying to convert anybody at this point. <laughs> I mean, at this point. So he said, what, he goes, his whole counts, his, I mean, I honestly felt like it was like this. I honestly felt like he realized that he had become friends with a Christian and that he was like, something just said, man, you better break that. I just felt like it was that. So he goes, so what do you think about abortion? And I, I looked at him and I kind of dropped my head like, oh, this is going to be ugly because I know we are not going to agree on this. And so I said to him, you're Jewish, right? He goes, I said I was. Just like this. I said I was. <laughs> Calm down. I get it. I said, do you, do you know how Adolf Hitler, do you know how he managed to exterminate six million of your people? He just looked at me like, not exactly, kind of look. I said, he convinced the German people that Jews were not human. He dehumanized you, and then he exterminated your race like rats. He's looking at me. I said, do you know how we Americans enslave the African Americans, the black people of our nation? We convinced landowners that black people were savages, that they were, came from apes, that they were not human. And then we enslaved them. The same thing with the uh, uh, Native Americans. We convinced people that the Indians, the Native Americans, were savages. And then we killed them. We hunted them like animals. How do we do it? We dehumanized them. So now we have figured out a way to make a fetus, which is the Latin word for the word baby or youth or young one. We've convinced people that the... That the fetus is not human, therefore our constitution doesn't protect it. He's looking at me so intently. And I said, and you, and the African American race, ought to be the first ones to understand what it's like to be dehumanized so you can be exterminated. But you, your races, are the biggest perpetuators of abortion in America. He looked at me, and now he's got tears rushing down his face, not even trying to hide it. He looks at me, and he goes, I, I have been deceived. I'm telling you, I have been deceived. And then he hangs his head. I'm not kidding you, it happened just like this. He hangs his head, and he's like music. He's like talking to himself, and he says, I'm hanging around. With the wrong people. That's what he said. 
We have this incredible opportunity. Remember I said that laws protect core values. Laws don't make core values. Laws protect core values. And maybe they perpetuate them in the way my friend was sharing with me. But laws come out of our core values. We go, this is what we believe, so we need to protect what we believe to be true. Well, what's really exciting is for the first time in Gallup poll history, 51% of Americans in the 2009 Gallup poll said they are, they are pro-life. They are against abortion. That has never happened since they've been polling Americans. We are, in the, we are on the president, we are on the edge of this incredible tipping point in which our generation, which you know, Roe versus Wade, 1973, our generation ushered in, ushered in a slaughter of babies. And our generation, I want that to end before my children take over for us. I want to hand my children a world in revival. My forefathers handed us, our forefathers handed Americans a, a land of freedom. Our, for, our, our foremothers, they fought for equal rights. Black people fought for freedom. Scientists and, and medicine fought for the, the breakthrough in smallpox and polio and leprosy. and I mean, all kinds of diseases that literally black plague just wiped out whole, whole almost whole continents. And we stand here free of those things because someone looked into the future and said, I'm going to leave my children a world better off than I got it. I want to give you some statistics. In Russia, in 1955, abortion was, became legal in Russia. The average Russian woman, okay, you need to get the word average. The average Russian woman has had eight abortions. That means some have had less, but it means some have had more. We just came from Latvia, which used to be a Russian nation, and, and uh, one of the leaders of, of them were taking us around, showing us around, and made this statement. It's not uncommon to meet Russian women that have 15 and 16 abortions. They use it as birth control. Every year, 46 million abortions occur. That's 5,365 an hour, 89 children a minute, 1.5 children a second are aborted. At, the current, at this current rate, 35% of all American women will have had an abortion by the time they're 45 years old. Now, get this. Out of 1.4 million abortions estimated to be performed in America per year, 1.4 million a year. It's an estimate. You know why? Because now we, we, we passed the Patients' Privacy Act, which means nobody really knows. You got that? So it's an estimate. 1.4 million children a year are aborted in America, approximately. 690,200 690, are female children. Uh, this is a really simple point. Every woman in this room was once a baby. You, do not know, you don't know where I'm going? Female babies become women. Remember, this is supposed to be about women's rights. And I'm asking about, how about the female babies that are being destroyed? Are they women or not? 
The black race is literally being exterminated in our country. You know what? There's a spirit after the black African-American race. I'm telling you, they, they tried to enslave you, if you're listening, and now they're trying to exterminate you. The black, black uh, Americans constitute 13% of our population, but they constitute 33% of all abortions. You know what that means? That means that a black woman is three times more likely to have an abortion than a white woman. Here's another important statistic. There's 743,377 Africans born yearly on the average. I'm sorry, that die yearly. There's 614,074 born yearly. Figure out, you can figure out the math, right? That means that 127,300 more Africans die in America every year than are born. It doesn't take a genius to figure out where that's heading. You know that in Russia, they pay women to have children. They've aborted so many children that they now pay women to not abort their children. Sometimes we ask, like, why do people abort their children? Well, statistically speaking, According to um, a bound for life or bound for life, 98% of all abortions are done for personal choice, unwanted or inconvenient children. 1.7 abortions, 1.7% of all abortions are done because of mother's health. 3.3.3 abortions percent abortions are done for the sake of rape or incest. Are you with me? Does it make you uncomfortable? I'm trying to. More children have died at the hands of abortion doctors since Roe versus Wade than have died in all the wars in America put together. Like Are we supposed to be talking about this in church? Yes. Now, here's a really strange deal. Here's the ultimate injustice. The ultimate injustice happens when you define what's conceived, when the definition of what's conceived is determined by the method it's terminated in. Let me just tell you what I mean. In 2005, you'll remember Scott Peterson killed Lacey Peterson, his wife. How many of you remember that? Do you remember what the deal was? Lacey Peterson was seven months pregnant. And when he killed Lacey Peterson, the baby died also, or the fetus died also. And they charged him with what? A double murder. Isn't it interesting? If she would have aborted that child at seven months, that would have been considered a fetus. But when she, when he was murdered, it was considered a human. And our Constitution protected it if it's murdered, but didn't protect it if it's aborted. Now, let me ask you just a question. I mean, this is a deep theological stuff. This is all simple stuff, I think. Is there anything else, anywhere else in the world, that is defined by the circumstances of its termination rather than the origin of its conception? 
Can you think of anything else that its definition is determined by how it's terminated? Can you imagine taking your car and, and intentionally running it into the wall? And because you intentionally ran into the wall, you go, well, it's just the iron ore mass of, you know, you, know, you kind of get where I'm going. But if you accidentally ran it into the wall, you go, oh, that's an automobile. In other words, do you know anything else? Is there anything else that you can think of on the planet that is defined by its determination instead of its conception? What's the real problem? In my opinion, the real problem is not the law. You don't want the laws to change. I do want the laws to change. But I know that if women's rights, the right for a woman to vote changed, but the view of women didn't change, that that would constantly be in the courts, being challenged, being voted on. It would go back and forth depending on whose side it was on. But once a woman's value was determined and it was it was determined that a woman was as valuable as a man, the laws protected that core value. Are you with me? So I want to see the law change for sure. Absolutely. Like today, right now. But if we could change the way we view what we what's in the womb. The law would change because the law protects our core values. Are you following me? So the question in my mind comes down to this. What's happened to the maternal instinct? Kathy and I and our kids and a bunch of us, Danny and Sherry and Bill and Benny, you know, we all grew up and raised our kids in the woods. And, you know, most animals are passive. You get a squirrel. It's on your deck and you open the door. The squirrel runs off. Now you take that same squirrel and you put them in a log with its babies. And you stick your hand in that log. You're going to get a whole other revelation of the maternal instinct. Because an animal that will run off will die to protect its young. You know, what, listen, how many of you have children? How many of you get pretty mad when someone talks bad about your children? They just talk bad about your children. No, okay, let me just ask you an honest question. Even if they talk bad about your children and it's true, how many of you get mad? That's the maternal instinct. Like, you, listen, you messed with me, okay, but you don't mess with my family. Okay, you don't mess with my kids. Well, your kid, listen, my kid, listen, if my kid got an F on the report card, it's because he's got a crummy teacher. Okay, my kid's a genius. Waiting for a teacher who understands. Um, I mean, there's really, seriously, there's something in us that says, listen, mess with me. Mess with some of my friends, maybe even. But you don't mess with my kids. There's something. I mean, it isn't just in men. It's in men and women. It's like, don't you don't touch my kids. All right. And if I have to hear something painful about my kids because or something negative about my kids because someone's trying to help him, it's still painful. Right. It's still painful. I still have to. Re OK, it's like going to the dentist. It's like, all right, this hurts, but it's going to be good. It's just something in you that goes, don't mess with my kids. 
So what's happened that the people who normally protect their children, who are the most vibracious about protecting their young, have actually perpetuated destroying what's inside of them? You know, Psalms 127 says this, Behold, children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is, the, is a reward. I had somebody ask me a question. This is years ago. She said, you know, I had sex before I was married, da-da-da, and I asked God to forgive me. And, you know, and he said he forgave me, but I still got pregnant. And she's asking, like, why didn't God answer my prayer if he forgave me? And I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. God is showing you that he can bring something wonderful out of a bad circumstance. He gave you his best gift. He gave you children. There are millions of Americans who can't have children. There is no such thing as an unwanted child in America. If someone tells you that, you're not telling you the truth. I'm not saying in the world, in America. There's no such thing as an unwanted child in America. People are standing in line to adopt children. Psalm, I love Psalms 14, 17, 14. Are you guys okay? This is so intense. Sorry, I feel like I'm about to explode inside. This, uh, the verse 14 of chapter 17 of the Psalms. From men, from men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world, whose portion is in this life, and whose belly you fill with your treasure, they are satisfied with children and leave an abundance to their babies. Is that a good word? Okay, I'll, let me give you just a couple of ideas how mindsets have changed. Oh, it feels so intense here. You're making me nervous. Okay, I'm doing good. My wife says I'm doing good, and I, I'm, she's right. In the agricultural age, the more children you had, the more prosperous you were. You know, when we moved out of slavery, and forgive me for mentioning that again, but when we moved out of slavery, the workforce became children. I'm not saying it wasn't children partly when we were in slavery, but it really became children. And so, you know, if you wanted to be prosperous, you had 6, 8, 10, 12 children, right? Very common to have a family of 10 or 12 children when you're in the agricultural age, right? But what happened when we transitioned from the agricultural age where your prosperity was determined by your offspring into the industrial age. Well, to tell you the truth, not too much happened until the Second World War when women, we ran out of ammunition, our men were fighting the war, we ran out of ammunition, and there wasn't men to, to actually go into the plants and, and make ammunition, you know, work in the, in the uh, ammunition plants. So we had to basically draft our women into the ammunition plants. And I don't mean they weren't already working in, you know, by then women were already, you know, already in the workforce in the sense of, you know what I mean, women overwork men any day. I want to be careful. I'm saying they came into the paid workforce in groves. But the struggle was that there was no daycare. You know, there was no preschool and daycare. I mean, people trained, many people trained their kids at home or sent them to a small school. And so now we have these women all being enlisted in these ammunition plants so that we can actually finish the Second World War. And, and there's, no place, there's nothing to do with these huge families. And so you can understand that, that children began to go from a blessing to a burden. Something that made you money. And please, I'm not trying to reduce children to money, but you can understand... I'm just trying to help us with mindsets. Something that produced money 
you, you were saw, oh, well, you have 10 children, man, you got yourself a workforce to, hey, who's going to watch all these children? Who's going to, how much are you paying your babysitter to watch all these kids? You, you can understand that the value for children begins to, to change. And then when women um, you know, fought for their rights, they fought under, I think, this is, please forgive me, ladies, you know I'm with you, right? You know I'm for you. But in my opinion, they fought with false pretenses. And what I mean by that is this. Who were they fighting to get their rights from? Simple. Men, right? And men said this. Hey, women, if you want equal value and equal rights, you have to have the same role that we have. And we, what we did is we told women that men's roles were valuable, but women's roles were not. And that staying at home was not as valuable. Staying at home and raising children had less value than making money. Are you with me? And what happened was, is that we began to say to women, you want equal rights and equal value? Then you have to have an equal position. And we took off, we, we, we did away with gender differences. Because we said, you can't be different and still be as valuable. Now, I think that this is the way it should have went. If I was leading the... Revolution, <laughs> which I wasn't. If I was a woman, I would have said, listen, why don't we do this? Why don't we swap jobs for 60 days? You stay home with the kids for 60 days. I'll go do your job and we'll see who has more value at the end of 60 days. Because I think if we would have swapped jobs for 60 days, it would have been men who started acting like women. Because we would have realized we would have realized like, who's stronger than who? Like, men, I'd like to see you have a child. And I are one. Not a child. A man. Okay. So we got, so women got equal rights, but what did it cost them? It cost them gender identity. In other words, we said, staying home and raising children is not very valuable. I'm just trying to tell you, how did we get to abortion? Well, first we came out of the agricultural age and children went from a burden, I mean, from a blessing to a burden. And then we had the, this, this, uh, you know, this revolution, which women got rights, which they should have. But how they how men gave them rights was through gender equality, not gender equality. Gender equality is true, but through gender identity. They said we're the same. And listen, I know this isn't popular. I know that you could get crucified for this. That's why I'm not running for any office ever. It's already destroyed on YouTube. Any chance that I could run for anything. I couldn't run for school board. I couldn't run for head of the chicken coop because of what's on YouTube. But let me just say this. Women and men are not the same. Okay, this is deep. This is deep. So you can't share the obvious. It's politically incorrect to say a woman is not a man. A man is not a woman. Women have strengths men don't have. And men have strengths, oh, here we go, that women don't have. Gosh, I'm sorry. That is so harsh. And we send our women off to war. It's just crazy stuff. I mean, they, I don't, you know, oh, gosh, Jesus, help me. I know I'm going to be hated. I know I'll probably never get more emails than this week. I already had people walk out this morning. I'm like, I'm so sorry you didn't finish. Let me finish. And then on top of that, we had the sexual revolution. You know the sexual revolution? You can't be 
with the one you love, love the one you're with? Can you decode that? Or do you want me to decode it for you? It means... Gosh, should I? It means screw anybody you're with. You don't have to worry about love. What does love have to do with it? And the sexual revolution took off sexual boundaries and said, listen, you don't need to have covenant to have sex. Just do anybody you want. It's all right. And a whole revolution came out of that. And guess what? Cohabiting doesn't make a great foundation for children. Because the reason why people cohabit instead of get married, you, know, you talk to them, they have four, three or four, two, three children. And you go, why, why don't you get married? You have three children together. Like, oh, it, marriage is just a piece of paper. I'm like, if it's just a piece of paper, why don't you sign a dang thing? I'll tell you why you don't sign it. Because in cohabiting, you use manipulation, the fear that I'm going to abandon you to get people to do what you want them to do. So you don't want to sign a piece of paper that says I'm going to be there forever because you want them to feel insecure about you being there so that you get what you want. Because in cohabiting, you're not in it for what you can give, but you're in it for what you can get. You're a consumer, not a contributor. And cohabiting doesn't create a secure model for children to be born into. And that's why three quarters of our children wander around at 19 trying to figure out who the heck they are. Because their parents don't even know who they are. And why insecurity and fear run rapid in our nation. You know, I did a a series on fear is not your friend eight years ago. It's my best selling series. It's not even a good teaching. (laughs) I'm just serious. It's okay. It's not great. But people are entrenched in fear and insecurity. Why? Because they were born into it. It's a family. It's not a family. It's a cohabiting curse. And then we move into science. What happened when we, were, we hit the sexual revolution is people began to need a reason for not having to answer for their behavior. Because, you know, John says that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness and judgment. How do we get that conviction off of us? We have to change our belief system. We, we, we have to find a way to not have a creator that we have to answer to. So guess what happened? Darwinism had its perfect platform in the sexual revolution, Darwin was Darwin died in 1884. No serious scientist ever took Darwin seriously. Science didn't take Darwin seriously. It was 100 years later, 40, 50, 60 years later that we began to take Darwinism serious. Why? Because we needed a reason to not answer to a creator. And Darwin gave that to us. And listen, what did Darwin really do? You're like, well, you don't believe in evolution? You know, okay, we can argue. I'm not a scientist. But here's what I do believe. I was made in the image and likeness of God. I was made in the image and likeness of God. Darwin said I was made in the image and likeness of an imp, uh, the ape, imp, ape. An imp is an ape. It's just in a different country. (laughs) I'm acting like one now, so... The Bible said that I was made in God's image and in his likeness, and therefore I was as valuable as God. In fact, Ephesians 5 says, imitate God. Why? Because I was born in his image and his likeness, and when I imitate God, I'm being myself. 
But Darwin said, I was made, I was, I was, I was a metamorphosis of an ape. I'm an animal. I'm just a highly intelligent animal. What did that do to human value? Are you getting this? Like, do you understand? Like, this didn't ha- someone didn't wake up one day and say, I think I'm going to kill my babies. Oh, that's not really a baby that's moving around in my stomach. That's a, that's a blob of tissue. Well, come on, man. Just let's have an intelligent moment for a second. But how did we get there? We didn't get there in one day. It, we, listen, we, tr- we were transformed over about 80 years. And little by little, piece by piece, we began to lose value for children because we, lo- we lost value for humanity. And we began, to, we began to lose sight that we really are sons and daughters. Listen, even if you don't know God, you're a son or daughter of God. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is the Christian knows it. They have a revelation of Jesus Christ, like, I'm a child of the King. I'm a joint heir of Christ. And what happens? I begin to value me. Why? Because God values me. Hello, wake up and smell the coffee. Part of the struggle with the church is that evolutionary Darwinism is not just about, about evolution. It's about the way you feel about yourself. And you've got atheists running around asking what their purpose in life is. I'm like, that is the stupidest comment I've ever heard. If you were a, came from me, but why do you have to have a purpose? Well, I don't believe in God, but I wonder what my purpose is. Listen, just that is stupid. If you don't have a designer, why would you have a purpose? This is not rational. People, listen, this is not rational. And by the way, if you believe that what's in the womb of a woman is a baby, you are a radical, crazy, right-wing nut. And the people who can see it on a sonogram and still abort it a third term, they are normal. They are normal, and you will crazy people. Crazy people think that's a baby, don't <laughs> Lying agendas keep people in denial and deception through, through all, all through the ages. In Galileo's day... Galileo didn't discover the telescope, by the way, but he he innovated the telescope. He made it better. And he observed that that the earth revolved around the sun. What you think? All right. Awesome. Who cares? Well, the church cared. Because the church said that everything revolves around the earth. We are the center of the world, of course. And when Galileo, and by the way, Galileo was not, if you do some study, which I'm not a scientist or anything, but I've done a little study on his life. He was not even the main scientist who actually came up with that theory. He was just a rebel. And he said, I am not letting any religious organization tell me how to think. And he stepped up and said, listen, I can see it. It is verifiable. It's observable. I cannot go on believing a lie because I can observe the truth. And the church put him... Tried him as a heretic and put him in prison. And there he finished the rest of his years on house arrest. And I'm telling you, religion is still doing the same thing today. It's no longer, it's no longer Protestants or Catholics. It's the church of humanism. 
And they preach in their cathedrals of the media and television every day. You know, I believe in free speech. Yeah, you do. You think you have free speech? Just say something the media doesn't agree with and see how free you feel. So you have a right to their opinion. It doesn't matter that what you're saying is intelligent. If it's politically incorrect, they will crucify you for it. And make you look stupid if you run for a candidacy and you believe, well, you believe in, the, you know, in, in, in your pro-life. Yes, I do believe that's a baby. Oh, uh, well, that's crazy. You know? And they say terrible things about you because you happen to actually believe that what you can see is true. We're not talking about living by faith here. We're talking about living by sight. See, when, this, when the telescope was improved to the place where they could actually view the planets, they could observe what they thought in theory. What they believed in theory was now observable. When the sonogram was invented, come on with me. Innovation should lead to trans- transition. And when it doesn't, it's always because some religious spirit is resisting it. With the invention of the sonogram, scientists, at first, and now medical doctors, now everybody, can observe what they always believed to be true. That children, that the fetus in the womb has feelings, emotional feelings, has, wants to protect itself. When it, when it is attacked, you put, you know, they've done all these tests. You can get on, you can Google, you think I'm crazy, get on Google, you can see live photographs I mean, video of this stuff happening. They, they attack the baby with a pencil and the baby protects itself. It has emotions. It, it has feelings. It feels. Planned Parenthood, I'm sorry. Um, oh, what's the right uh, organization? CareNet did a study. This is nine, uh, 2009. They did a study and they put, they put sonograms in several of their CareNet facilities where women go for counseling and help. And what they found was that 72 to 80 percent, depending on the geographic area, 72 to 80 percent of all women who are predisposed to abortion. In other words, they came in wanting an abortion when they saw the sonogram of their baby canceled their abortion. 72 to 80 percent. Planned Parenthood says this. They said there is no distinguishable measurable difference between a woman who sees a sonogram and a woman who doesn't, and they surveyed 254 women. Now, let me ask you a question. If there is a problem, if, if a sonogram does not change a woman's view of abortion, then why would Planned Parenthood be fighting putting sonograms and ultrasounds in every a clinic in America? I can tell you why. Because it does make a difference. And because abortion is a 90 billion, 90 billion dollar business and Planned Parenthood is the largest abortion provider in, not in America, in the world. 90 billion. I didn't say million, billion. And guess what? It's a business. Just like the dentist is a business, just like the doctor is a business, just like the car business, just I was in the auto parts business. It's a business. And guess what drives business? Money. So I asked Planned Parenthood, if your if ultrasound doesn't make a difference, then what are you afraid of? Yeah, yeah. And I, this is this this is what I think we should do. 
if we just passed a law that said every abortion provider in the country has to have ultrasound and a woman has to see the ultrasound. You know what they say? They say it causes trauma. Well, why would seeing a blob cause trauma? Gosh, can we just think for a minute, people? You saw a blob and it caused you trauma. It wouldn't have anything to do with it having fingers and, and toes and parts, would it? It caused the women trauma. How much trauma do you think it's going to cause them when they wake up one day and figure out what it looked like when they aborted it? I should stop right here because I feel like I'm creating so much condemnation for people who have had abortion. Listen, Jesus has forgiven you. I just want you to know, like, he's not mad at you. He's not mad at you. I'm not mad at you. I'm not mad at you. In fact, honestly, every woman in the sound of my voice that's had an abortion, you are the number one. You are the best offense we have to make this thing change. Because you've had the experience and you know what it's like. And you can dispel the lie. Having an abortion has no after effects. Planned Parenthood says having an abortion has no negative after effects. It's not true. It's completely not true. I've counseled hundreds of women who have had abortions. And, they, and every one of them that I've ever counseled has trauma from it. So to say that women do not have emotional Problems after they abort their children is not true. Or are there some? Well, of course there's some. There's, there's people who can do all kinds of crazy stuff and not feel bad about it, right? So, but if you're a woman that's had an abortion or you're a man in this room that's forced someone to or encouraged someone to, you need to, just need to receive the forgiveness of God. You, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're completely forgiven. This isn't about you. This is about making sure that it doesn't continue. Okay. I'm sorry if I'm sounding harsh. I don't feel harsh, but I do feel passionate. You know, the question isn't when does life begin? The question is when does love begin? I'm just going to do this really quickly. This, I'm almost done. This has been shared so many times. In Exodus 1, verse... Six When Joseph died, it says there arose a Pharaoh who knew not God. I'm sorry, knew not Joseph. And he took shrewd advantage of the people. And what did he do? He started killing all the firstborn males. Why? Because God had already called for a deliverer. Are you with me? God was calling for a deliverer. And there was something inherent in the devil's kingdom. And they go, you know what? The deliverer is coming from this generation, and so we'll wipe out a whole generation. The same thing happened. You know this. Matthew 2, verse 11, starts the story of Herod. And when Herod found out that there was a Savior born, what did he do? Killed all the firstborn males. Why did he do that? Because he heard there was a Savior. He knew there was a deliverer. There was another king. I'd like to propose to you that this is a generation with an answer. And the enemy knows it. And he can't figure out where the answer is coming from. See, let me back up for a minute. 
the real atrocity is not that we kill babies because those babies go to heaven. The real atrocity is that the Martin Luther Kings, the Esters, the Einsteins, see the greatest inventors, the greatest reformers, the greatest... You, 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 get, you get where I'm going. They are not... They, the enemy is trying to kill people not because he, does, he wants to keep them out of heaven but because he wants to keep heaven from coming to earth. So he's wiping out a generation because he's concerned about the gift mix that is about to be born. I want to just give you one more reason. In 1970, there was a book written called The Late Great Planet Earth. And it changed our message from the kingdom is at hand. Jesus said, preach everywhere, the kingdom's at hand. To the end of the world is near. And one of the key verses in that book is this verse. Woe to you who are with child in those days. 1973, Roe versus Wade passed. 1970, the book was released. 1973, Roe v. Wade was passed. Now listen, I have nothing against the author. All he did was, was put to words what was already common in the Jesus movement, our, our eschatology. Eschatology means study of last days. That was, that was our eschatology. He just, put it, he just wrote a book about what was already believed to be true. So I, I'm not saying Hal Lindsey's a bad person or anything. I'm sure that there are things in my books that someday I'll look back and go, eh, I, I could have done that differently or i'm not sure that was quite right so please i'm not attacking a person i i'm blessed have been having been raised in the jesus movement but one of the main messages of that book was woe to you who were child in that day and it talked about the mark of the beast and the in the terrible tribulation that we were going to pass through and i just wonder how many women saw the abortion as a mercy killing compared to going through the great tribulation. Now, for some of you that are younger, you don't have any idea what I'm talking about. What we were taught the tribulation was going to be and what our children were going to have to pass through was atrocious. And I wonder if that was another mode of changing mindsets where abortion looked like a lot better option than bringing children into this world where the beast was about to take over. And where they were going to about to have to go through the great tribulation, take a mark if they wanted to eat. Are you with me? And so what I'm getting at is that I'm concerned that sometimes our eschatology is actually promoting the very thing we're trying to undo. You know, people do strange things when they're scared. Have, have you ever been afraid before? How many of you have ever been terrified before? I mean, listen, I mean, you've been terrified. Raise your hand. I just want to see. You've been terrified. Were you yourself when you were terrified? No. Were you making decisions about things? Were you making decisions that you didn't even believe are right? Yeah. Have you ever done anything when you're afraid that when you come out of fear, you're like, what the heck was I doing? Our prisons are full of people who have pulled the trigger when they would have never done that if they weren't completely terrified. And they wake up the next day and they're like, oh, my God, what have I done? And it's changed their life forever. 
because they did something out of fear that that wasn't their core value, wasn't the way they normally behave. You're with me, right? And what I'm getting at is that when you when you use fear to drive people into a belief system, that fear causes people to behave in ways they wouldn't normally behave. So be careful how you get people into the kingdom. You scare people in the kingdom, they don't behave like themselves. Remember, perfect love casts out fear. Okay, let me just finish. Why don't you stand? Intense morning, afternoon. Go 49ers. Okay. (sighs) Poor 49ers. Yeah. I wasn't very funny today, sorry. I just don't feel like we can stand by and watch as our nations move into the cesspool of irresponsibility. Men, men, we were born, men, I'm talking to the males, men, you have a gender identity. Part of your job is to protect women and children. It's completely irresponsible to stand by and let this atrocity happen around us and pretend that we can't do anything about it. I'm not talking about taking away people's rights. Now, the question isn't, does a woman have a right to choose? The question is, when? I mean, can she choose a year after? I mean, at some point, you have to draw a line. You have to say, hey, my behavior created this. I made a choice. Sorry, I'm not trying to be harsh. And I'm telling you, in my mind, abortion is actually the sin of men. It's a sin of fatherlessness. And I think that we need to step in and be men and begin to protect our women and make a, pl- a safe place for women who, who don't have, a, a, where their children don't have fathers and so on and so forth. We've got men. This is, this is, we need to protect our women and we need to protect our children. I'm not talking about controlling them talking about protecting them women if you've had an abortion you need to step up and tell the world the truth about how it feels and what it's done to you so that this atrocity stops if you will stand up if you will stand up and say hey that was me i was told that that's a lie i'm telling you we can turn the tide we're already at the tipping point of history listen we can stop this thing in the next 10 years and we, we, we can do it by laws, but the laws will change when mindsets change. And I'm telling you, you need to get, you, you need to get free from the guilt and the condemnation that you did it. And you need to say, I did that and I regret it. And I would never do it again. And this is what I was told it was. And I realized today I was wrong. Hey, I was wrong. Anyone else ever made a mistake in here? Please raise your hand. We need to make sure these ladies get it. Okay. How many of you would do life different if you had it to do over again? Come on. That's true. So you just need to step up and say, I was wrong. I made a bad choice. It cost a life. I thank God for forgiveness, but I don't want anyone else to experience. You know, as fathers, one of the things that we want the most is for our children to not experience the pain that we experience because of our stupid mistakes and things we, we did wrong. We don't, want, we don't want our kids to experience that. And sometimes you just got to tell your story. You know, sometimes you just got to sit your kids down and say, your, your mom and I did this stupid thing. We wish we would have never done it. We don't want that for you. We want better for you. 
And part of what needs to happen, not only does the maternal instinct need to return, but motherhood needs to return. So that moms step up and say, I made that mistake that was dumb. I would never do it again. And, and it's cost me all of this. And I don't want to, I don't want to give this to you, to this, to your generation. I want to tell you the truth about the pain this has caused me. And I've hit it so many years. And some of you could change history just by telling your story, just by getting free and saying, I won't let condemnation t- take away my testimony. This is the truth. I did it. Jesus forgave me. And I want you to have a better life than I had. And that ought to be what we do as mothers and fathers. We should share our victories, but we should darn well share our mistakes. That's what legacy is all about. And we all have regrets. Every one of us have regrets in this room. I have things I wish I would have never done. Young and stupid, sometimes rebellious. Sometimes I knew it was wrong and did it anyway. And, you know, we've all done that too, haven't we? So, God, we just pray for forgiveness. We pray for forgiveness for every person who's listening. For all of us, God, we're talking about abortion right now, but for every stupid thing we've done, things we knew were wrong, we did it anyway, things we didn't know were wrong, things we didn't want to hear. People try to tell us we're on the wrong path, we didn't listen. Lord, we just pray for just a global forgiveness. Okay, I don't even know if we can do that. I just pray for global forgiveness for people. I mean, all over the world, people just start getting free. They just start getting free. I'm going to tell my story. I'm not living under this condemnation anymore. I'm not going to hand my children a world in a cesspool. I'm going to hand it a world in revival. God, I just pray for that. I pray for people all over the world just to begin to wake up and say, I am not going to be lied to anymore. I I will not live in denial any longer. I will say what's true, don't matter what religious people think. And Lord, I just pray that you would turn the media Lord, I pray for our president and I pray for our leaders that you would awaken them in the night, that you would begin to visit them in the day, that you'd begin to do what you said you'd do, convict the world of sin, that, that millions of babies would, would, would be born this year because of this message and the message of so many others that would stand up and be counted and say, I will not any longer run from the fear of my mistakes, but I will stand up and make sure that someone else doesn't make one. That some life doesn't get taken because I was silent. Lord, I pray that you would kiss the church awake. Kiss us awake. And God, help us to stop being angry every time we see something go wrong. Help us to stop representing you as some angry person that just wants to kill everybody who makes a mistake. God, help us to, help us to share with the world a grieving father. The heart of a grieving father who grieves over our mistakes who weeps over the earth, who weeps over us when we make mistakes, who's not trying to hurt us, is not trying to beat us up, not trying to guilt us into something, but you grieve over the earth. You, you grieve over women who are hurting because of mistakes they've made. You grieve over children who've been abused. You grieve over men who've done the same. God, we, just, we pray, God, that you would just allow the church to represent you the way you really are. And not the way we are, angry people. God, help us to not be angry people. And God, would you just take our Supreme Court judges. God, we just pray for wisdom for them. God, we break the spirit of delusion and illusion over them. God, we pray for the Galileos of our day to stand up. We pray for the greatest scientists, even atheists. 
Lord, we pray for even atheists to stand up and, and be counted. Say, that is a baby. If I've ever seen a baby, that's a baby. God, I pray that the greatest scientists of our time would break off the restraints of political pressure and stand up and say, I would dedicate my life to truth, and that's a lie, and this is true, and I won't stand for a lie any longer. Lord, let the Galileos of our land just all over the world begin to stand up and testify in our highest courts of the land that that fetus is a baby. Lord, we pray for that in Jesus' name. And God, give us favor with the media. God, I pray that the most brilliant minds, the funniest people, the most entertaining people would move into media positions and begin to turn the tide that is against life. And they would be for life. In Jesus' name.